I have been anxiously awaiting this morning, not just because of the privilege to preach, not just because of the opportunity to worship with you, but it's to introduce to you and to prepare you and to give a preview of the people that will be joining our church next Sunday on Easter. So Easter, the cornerstone of our faith, as Pastor Hanley has mentioned, it proves once and for all that God is satisfied in his anger not to take it out on us, but yet through Christ's sacrifice and his goodness, we are forgiven and we could be redeemed. And so that is the centerpiece of our faith. Without it, it doesn't matter if we're Christians or not, because without it, we are still dead in our sins. But see, along the way, as God's people gather to, to worship, as God's people gather to serve, as God's people gather to encourage and build each other up, then the commitment is made by God's people to one another as they pursue and follow Christ. And so whenever somebody joins a church, they are doing more than signing their name on a piece of paper. They're doing more than getting their name in a database. They're doing more than to make something official in a superficial, meaningless kind of way. But when somebody joins the church through baptism or through transfer so that they could be a part of our church family officially, it is a demonstration of the gospel at work, transforming and changing the lives of people, shaping and forming his children as God continues to grow his families locally and globally in local churches. And so today I want to accomplish a few things. First, let me show you some beautiful pictures. Well, I mean, it's one giant collage, but many beautiful pictures. So there's 24 people that are going to join our church. And if you don't think you remember them all, that's okay, because if I didn't show you this, you would have had no clue until next week. So I'm showing you this, and then next week when they're here in front of you, you're able to continue to, to you know, get to know them and build a relationship with them. But you know what? It's fun. If they're sitting next to you, then you know, now you know. You kind of caught them. They're up there. But so today's sermon, I want to do a couple of things. One is I want to prepare then our members, those who are part of the FCBC Walnut family, emphasizing the word family, that we are being prepared not just to know who these people are, but we are being prepared to keep covenantal love with them, to invest and to know them, to welcome them into the family. And we need to prepare for this in ways that we prepare for many other seasons and stages of life. When you're going to have a child, you're going to prepare. If you're going to get married soon, you're going to prepare. If you're going to change a job, you're going to prepare. Well, we're going to welcome 24 people into our church family. It helps when we prepare. I also want to use this almost as a kind of a follow-up, kind of like a bonus membership class for those of you guys that are member candidates. You know, we're able to cover some things, but now you're going to hear me talk to you nonstop for like 45 minutes. So this is kind of a bonus class, but you need this because I want you to continue to grow as you prepare to join our church. For those of you guys who are FCBC Walnut faithful and regulars, maybe you're not members yet, but you are following Christ and you are here with us. I hope today will be a preview as we answer the question, why church membership? Why even join? Why commit to a group of people? Isn't it just okay that I'm faithful? And isn't it okay that I serve? Isn't it okay that I am walking with the Lord in my personal life? Why do I need to also commit to a people? And how is church membership an application of our vision 
to be a vibrant church, reproducing vibrant churches locally, globally, but it's a vibrant church of disciple makers. How does joining a church help that? How does it support that? And then finally, I know there's many of you that are here for a variety of reasons that are visiting us today. I hope that today would be an opportunity just to proclaim that the gospel, yes, saves you from your sin. That the gospel, yes, guarantees you heaven because Jesus will finish the work that he has started in you and bring you all the way there. But the gospel also connects you to a family. I want you guys to hear that because a lot of times part of even our doubts and our wrestling and our struggling with faith is with people that say they are Christians or they're a part of God's family and maybe the struggles and the trials that they've had. But I want you guys to hear from Scripture how this is meant to be a blessing, not just to know Jesus, not just to be forgiven, but then to be placed in a community, to be placed in a family of his children, to be able to walk together, to be able to grow together, to be able to suffer together, to be able to persevere together. So let's pray as we go and prepare our hearts for the word. Father, we thank you, God, for this morning. We just want to pray that you be with us. Open up the eyes of our understanding. Lord, so that we would prepare ourselves as members to welcome 24 people that will be joining us. God, give us a burden. Maybe we're not going to know every 24, but Lord, we can certainly know one or two more deeply and invest in them. Father, be with those that are preparing, Father, and they've shared their testimonies and they've done their paperwork and they will be welcomed today through the luncheon after service. Pray for them, Father, that their eyes will be set on you. Lord, that you will continue to grow their understanding and their conviction. Father, that joining a church is how they should follow you and how they will grow and how they will mature and how they will be blessed. Father, we pray, Lord, for those who have been in our midst here at FCBC Walnut. We praise you for them, for their faithfulness and attendance and serving all the ways in which they are in a mist. But Father, if they're not members, we pray, Father, that you would help them to examine and see, Father, what it means, God, to continue to take that next step by committing to join a church. And we pray, Father, for all of our friends here in this room. Lord, people that are visiting, people that have not trusted in Jesus, maybe even people that have not heard the gospel, that that word gospel comes with it all kinds of nuances and meaning and, and maybe even hurts and frustrations and confusion. We pray, Father, that Jesus would be lifted high and that his promises for people and that your promises for heaven with your people, Father, would become understandable, would become real, and that you would move in the hearts of those that have not known you and have not trusted in you, Father, to call them to faith in Jesus. We thank you, Father, that you're great in doing the things that we can't. So we lift our hearts up to you and we pray, Father, that you would Keep us in your word as we keep our eyes on you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so today we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. I'll go ahead and read from my Bible up here. It's also projected in front of you. You're welcome to read from your Bible, or you're welcome to listen with your ears and with your heart. Matthew 12, 46 to 50. While he was still speaking to the people... Behold, his, that's Jesus, mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand, 
towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So what is happening at this point in time? Well, Jesus is speaking to an ever-growing crowd of followers and listeners and fans, people that are just interested or maybe people that are riled up or maybe people that are looking to fight him and his teaching and his presence and his leading. In fact, the crowd has gone so big that there is a barrier of communication that they presented to his family then that were coming from the outside. So this is his mother and his brothers. And most scholars say, if not all scholars say, that maybe Joseph has already passed at this point. So the mothers and brothers are who Jesus has left. The crowd is sizable enough, and the situation apparently is urgent enough to where a message needed to be sent to Jesus to get his attention to say, hey, you need to meet with your family. You need to listen to your family. You need to gather with your family. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, it doesn't say specifically right up front exactly what circumstances were happening there, but you see an escalation of conflict and tension between Jesus and the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the scribes. As he is teaching, he is rebuking. As they are hearing, they are conflicted and they are angry and they are upset at what Jesus has to say. So perhaps that's the background that underlies a sense of urgency from his family. Well, hopefully in the Gospel of Mark, which we preached through probably about a year ago at this point from this passage, it clarifies Gospel of Mark saying that the family, mother and brothers, thought that Jesus was out of his mind in chapter 3, 21. So as the crowd was gathering, as Jesus was gaining in fame and maybe infamy, his family started to see that, wait, there's something out of control happening here that Jesus is right in the center of. And so maybe that's why they wanted to speak to him. And the Gospel of John adds a little bit more by telling us that at this point, his brothers did not believe that he was the Son of God and the Messiah. So you'd imagine that it's his family hearing and seeing Jesus doing things that were endangering his life, that was causing trouble, that was gaining the attention of the authorities that could take his life potentially. And in this society in which honor is given to those that the society approves and shame is given to those that the society doesn't, Jesus is in a dangerous, precarious situation especially when the family themselves do not believe that he is someone more special than the firstborn son. You might be able to even envision this a little bit of here as we're in the Mac, right? So it'd be where if someone needs to come with a message, some kind of urgency, some kind of emergency, and they're outside the door, and I'm not looking out the door, it'd be a little hard to, to make that connection, and then maybe they ask one of the ushers on the outside, you know, to, to pass the paper up here or walk up here to try to get through to the crowd to be able to get the message to the front. But this is not with everyone sitting, you know, quietly and everyone sitting attentively. This is with you guys all over the place, maybe worshiping, maybe jumping around, maybe just all, you know, because this is a crowd, a maddening 
crowd of people that were surrounding Jesus, not everyone had the same motives, not everyone had the same purpose, but they were there, and they were deep, and his family could not get to him. This family call was really important. Now, Jesus didn't know why, but as the firstborn son, where possibly his father had already passed, his earthly father had passed, how he responded in faithfulness, how he responded with urgency to the calling of his family, would cast either honor and favor on his family, on his reputation that affects many, or it would invite ridicule and shame to his family. And we're already looking at a family in which there was a virgin birth that took place, in which so much had already happened to set them apart, to be different than the average Nazarene. And so Jesus needed to respond to this. Jesus needed to respond to this, and it wasn't too much to ask for him to respond to this. But here's the interesting thing. In the culture that they were in, your family was actually the inside, right? And the family defined you, where you came from, your status, so on and so forth. They're the inside, and then any crowds, they're kind of like the outside. But circumstantially, locationally, it's the other way around as this story opens up. The family is outside. The people are inside his sphere. So how will he maneuver in this so that those that are on the outside who are supposed to be on the inside and those who are the inside but they are more relationally distant what is jesus going to say and teach about this well culturally family is greater than you so really had nothing to do about his own personal preferences okay so he just needed to cater to what his family demanded and expected of him because it is their wishes that mattered, and he needed to address that. But we see that Jesus actually didn't do that. Instead, what he did as the master disciple maker, using every occasion, using every circumstance, using every potential conflict, using every scenario, he uses it in a way with his disciples present to teach them something much deeper that impacts us today as followers of Jesus. See, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And so he uses this occasion that reflects and reveals the fabric and culture of the Jewish people. The law was given to them. The covenant and promises were given to them. The Messiah was supposed to come through them. He uses it to teach them and all of us the value of what it means to be family, to be part of a family that is thicker than blood, to be part of a family that is Jesus's family, to be a part of a family that lives forever. He uses this occasion to do precisely that goal and fulfill it. So what you see here is this. Jesus doesn't say that his family is not important. In fact, he stands on the fact that family is most important, and then he begins to draw his contrast. 
Okay? So he doesn't deny that family is important. And sometimes we, in our individualistic culture and society and thinking, think, you know what? It's me and Jesus. It's me and Jesus. It doesn't matter about my family or any other group that I'm affiliated with. Jesus doesn't say that. He had the perfect chance to do that. Jesus could have dismissed his family. Jesus could have not addressed it. Jesus could have finished his sermon. He kept, could have kept on asking his questions, but he didn't. He built on this topic of family and then started making some observations. He said this in verses 48. He said this, Who is my mother, 49, and who are my brothers? So he's directing the attention of the crowd to then who is family? Okay, who is family? And then he answers his own question with emotion as he points and addresses the entire group. My mothers and my brothers are whoever does the will of my father. Those are my family. So then he doesn't disavow the biological family, but then he turns things, and this is what he lays out. It's not that family is greater than you, but it's that your spiritual family who obey the will of God and keeps the word of God, they are greater than a biological family or an affinity family of some type, and that is greater than you. It's not that family is greater than you and just live with it. It's spiritual family is greater than biological family or affinity groups and you. So that's how Jesus turns things upside down. Here's where it gets in a conflict with us sometimes. Now, I'm throwing out this phrase, not to criticize it, but for us to think about it and maybe think how does it shape how we perceive family or corporate identity in Christ. I think it has shaped it because certainly I grew up with this phrase as a driving understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. And the phrase is this. To be a Christian is to accept Jesus in your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. Does that sound, raise your hand if that sounds familiar. And the rest of you, you're lying. Okay, so that's very familiar. Okay. Being a Christian is accepting Jesus in your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. But see, if we don't think that through, yes, we have an individual set of decisions, a life of repentance, a continuous journey of following Jesus that we are responsible for. Yes. But sometimes when that phrase gets too deeply ingrained and aligns with our individualistic all about me culture, then our focus becomes, hey, am I all right with Jesus? Am I okay with Jesus? Am I going to church? Am I reading my Bible? Am I praying? And if I could check off all those things, then I'm good. Because after all, he is my personal Lord and Savior. Just like I don't want to get in your business. You don't get in my business. Let's keep it personal. What is your life like with Christ? What is your own discipleship? And these are not bad ideas to evaluate and consider and reflect all the time, but push it to some extreme. You start thinking that maybe being right with God has nothing to do with being right with people. 
or being committed to God has nothing to do with being committed to God's people. Did you know that in the New Testament, that the word Savior, which we just sang, Mighty Savior, over and over again, did you know that 23 times it's used in a group setting? And only one time it is used to apply to an individual. In other words, whenever the word Savior is there, the idea is our Savior, you all's Savior, not your personal Savior. It's not in there. It's not in there. Did you guys know that in all of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, that when he referred to Jesus as Lord, that 53 times he is our Lord. One time, my Lord. 53 times it was our Lord. One time, it is my Lord. And you know where that one time is? So interesting. Philippians 3.8. I consider all things but loss. Why? Because Christ Jesus is Lord. His own Lord. So I consider my own sacrifices. I consider all my accolades and awards and trophies. I consider all of my status and education and standing. That's trash. Why? Because he's my Lord. My stuff, trash. My Lord deserves everything. That was the one time in Paul's epistles in which Lord was singular. Every other time, Lord was corporate and plural. That is, our Lord or not Lord. When you look at the, I mean, pretty much the, the, the life-changing, life-turning, paradigm-shifting events that pointed to God's salvation amongst people in the Old Testament and then the New Testament, what do you find is this? Is that God saves, yes, every single individual that put their faith in him. But that ultimately, God saves so that he can make a people. See, the Exodus was the setting free from slavery and pagan worship of an entire national people. And then what did he do with them? Even as they were complaining and wandering in the desert, he gave them the law. He told them what it means to be in relationship with him. And in Exodus 19.6, his will for his people that he set free from slavery, that he saved, was that they shall be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were not just that every single individual Israelite was okay with him. They were to be a kingdom and a nation. And even as they fell short then, and then intermediaries had to be put in, and people had to take specific rules instead of a whole people, God's intent was still clear that his people would live differently. His people would look differently. His people would not be like the neighboring nations. His people, not just a bunch of individuals. What do you find in Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes down. Peter preaches this 
extremely heart-wrenching, honest, truthful sermon, cutting to the heart of the Jewish people that were there, still in town, many of them finishing, celebrating Passover, they're staying through Pentecost. But what do you see happening there? In Acts chapter 2, verses 40 to 41, the writer says this, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation, you all. All of you be saved from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Them. God's people. Each individually responding, but yet as a people they gathered. As a people they remained. As a people they worshipped. As a people they served. And as a people, disciples were made. You realize that if somebody held to the, okay, Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior thing, I'm leaving. Their story wouldn't even be in there. Because it's about people, not just about individuals. So when God saves, they're community-creating events. They're not just personal, me-and-you, one-on-one occasions. Yes, it might be life-changing, but it's never just about your life. You find that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that God's people are baptized into one body, and then every single local church is a body to fulfill God's intent. You find in Ephesians 1, 5, that we are adopted into God's family. Why does that need to happen if it's just about us? It needs to happen because God, our gracious and kind Heavenly Father, saved us to place us into a new community and a new family where he is the head. Powerful, gracious, kind, forgiving, life-giving. Dr. Joe Hellman, he's a professor and author. He taught and he teaches at Talbot School of Theology. He said this, he said, the cross of Christ is the doorway to the community of faith. God's goal is not simply to usher me into a personal relationship with him. God's goal is to transfer me from one group to another, from the world to the family of God. And the verse you see there in the bottom, Colossians 1. You can almost picture this. We're being transferred, and we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You can imagine almost like one of those machines where the claw comes down to get the prize that you never get unless you cheat. It comes down, picks up the people, transfers them to his possession, to his belonging, to his control. People, not just individuals. The church father, Cyprian, from the third century, said this, You cannot have God for your father unless you have the church as your mother. And I think that's a wonderful way to understand and picture what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not a, I'm a Christian and maybe I'll choose church. 
is I'm a Christian. Spiritually, I'm already in the church. So where am I going to commit and serve and grow and invest? Because it's about we, not just about me. Well, so that's who God's people are. What defines them? What are they about? You know, we saw earlier in Matthew 12, 50, that whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, so people that obey God's will. Mark says something very similar in chapter 335, whoever does the will of God. But Luke gives a little bit, you know, of, of an angle here that's helpful. Who hear the word of God and do it? Those are those that do the will of God. That when you hear God's word and you do it, then you are doing God's will. There's a reason why we receive preaching and teaching and wisdom and discernment and are called to the word of God to grow. Because the Bible tells us so. It's so important. Now, how are we to relate to one another? Let's uh, expand this me versus us thing a little bit more. Is it just about your personal walk with Jesus? Or is it about your walk in relationship with the body of Christ, the church locally? Your tangible connection to a particular group of people. You know, this weekend began the NBA playoffs, which I, I love, although it's become kind of semi-meaningless nowadays. Uh, both Pastor Hanley and I were big Lakers fans, so, you know, you just dream and let it go. But there was something that happened um, leading up to it that was, you know, kind of interesting. That there was this celebration of Dwayne Wade's retirement, and for his last game, he had his buddies there. Uh, LeBron, Chris Paul, and Carmelo Anthony. Now, four of those players, they're all good. Three of them are actually playing. One's not. Okay. So here's the thing. Are they all basketball players? On some level, sure. They're gifted. You find them on the courts, they will school you. But the one that's not on a team, I think you can make the argument that you're not a basketball player. You're not a professional basketball player because basketball is a team sport. You're not on a team, or at least you're not on a team that's willing to play you. So our identification with a group of people needs to begin there. That it's not just about me and Jesus, me and Jesus. I'm sure he's still great. I'm sure he still practices. I'm sure he is still at the top of his game compared to many, even the professionals. But he's not on a team. Forget about not making the playoffs. You know, the Bible has 58 one another commands in the New Testament for Christians. Love one another, be kind to one another, so on and so forth. 58 of them. That's what it means to obey the will of God. That's what it means to keep the word of God. But if you had nobody for whom you are permitted to, to do this, if there's no family 
that you are invested in to walk through a journey in life like this, where they know where you're from, they know that you are committed to them and that they are committed to you. You can skate by with skipping a lot of the one another's. And just say, oh, yeah, I just I don't get along with that person, or I'm just gonna move on to another church. Or, you know, that church doesn't have this for me, that church doesn't have that for me. But maybe it's not about you. Maybe it's about how you can commit to a we. And now that doesn't have to be here, because I know we have friends and visitors here, and we're happy to have you here. But I think the idea is still that if we're wanting to grow, it needs to begin with our willingness to commit to a group of people that are following Jesus too. If we're not on a team, we can't play. If we're not committed to a church, we can't obey. It's not just superficial. It's very, very meaningful. Let's go ahead and look at Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. I mean, this is the passage that everyone turns to when there's talk about Christian community. Let me just read that really fast for us. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day to day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, even as I'm reading that, I'm kind of smiling a little bit because I know that that passage has been taken probably two different ways by most people. So one way is that they read this passage and they think, oh, that's so much work. That's so much time. That's so hard and I don't even like these people. So it's a burden. It's an obligation. It's a sense of, you know, obedience means that I have to do this. And you try to tough up a little bit and think, you know what, maybe I'll do it. Maybe I can. Maybe I will try. But the reason why I smile is because they smiled if you read closely. Glad and generous hearts. These were happy people. These were joyful people. Not that they're not busy people or sacrificial people, but they had a reason to be. It's because they knew who they were. They knew they've been bought with a price. They knew that they did not deserve to be lifted out of shame and put into a place of honor in a new community. But yet, here they are, and there's 3,000 other people that are there with them, and no one's going anywhere, and everyone's taking care of each other. Yes, it's a lot of work, but the gladness, the joy. When we do things to try to get happy and to try to be fulfilled and satisfied, it always feels like a burden. But when we do things out of gladness and joy, realizing you don't deserve it, it's different. And you can run. And you can run for a long time. These people knew from what they were saved from. And these people had nowhere better to go 
than to be with each other. They knew that Jesus called for all of his followers to be disciple makers. And that's why we are sitting here today, many of us, because someone, through some means, shared, preached, prayed for us if we are Christians. They knew this. And so they knew they had nowhere better to go than to be where God was in the center and in the middle of everything, of their community, of their life. Yes, it costs. Yes, it takes time. Yes, it requires for shifting of priorities and schedules. But salvation is worked out through we, not just about me. I'm going to read really quickly for us the FCBC Walnut Church Covenant. This expresses a lot of what I think, if we take this seriously, we start living like that first century church. Now, this is going to be in a link in upcoming members connections. It was also put there in the past. So if you guys are members, I encourage you guys to look back on it often. I'll go ahead and read this for, read this for us really quickly. This is the covenant that all the members of our church commit to, and this is Article 5 of the bylaws of our church. Having been led by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God, angels, and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body of Christ. Therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, we walk together in Christian love by sharing one another's joys and endeavor to bear one another's burdens and sorrows. We will encourage, counsel, admonish one another and be slow to take offense, but will always be ready for reconciliation without delay. As a holy people, we assemble faithfully for worship and fellowship, pray earnestly for others as well as for ourselves, and observe the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism by immersion. We uphold standards of Christian morality and oppose all conduct which compromises our Christian faith. As faithful stewards of God's resources, we contribute cheerfully and regularly in support of the ministry of the church in its training, local evangelism, and global mission. Our ultimate goal is to reach those who do not know Christ and to train them to rule with God in his eternal kingdom. As a result of this covenant relationship and as proof of the reality of our conversion, we will earnestly seek to live godly, fruitful lives to the glory of God who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. None of us will keep this perfectly. Not one. Maybe not even for a week. But if we commit to this because of what God has done, we will start looking more like his people. But even more than that, then we're going to start experiencing much more of that joy and gladness that we see from a distance when we read the scriptures, but it doesn't have to be. It'll be different with every local church, but God is working in each one in which his people commits to him. So this does connect then with membership, which is how you intentionally choose to join a church. And right now, as Pastor Hanley was talking about how we're going through a season of assimilation, the first thing I want to say is that, yes, we want to reach and connect all the newcomers and visitors and friends, but really, it's about all of you guys, right? Because it's we. It's not just those new people 
those new Christians, those young people. It's we. Right? That's the foundation that we're operating out of here. Not just that we got to give the new people something to do. That's not the heart of Christian community or the nature. And so we're going through the season of assimilation that's in the beginning stages. And the reason why I'm excited about those 24 people is because they're the first 24 people that we are going to place on the discipleship pathway and help them take the next step in community and in ministry. More personally, more hands-on. And through that, we'll bring together the resources and the people that we need. Now, this will take a while, but this is important to do. So if you will look at your bulletins in the back, and I really appreciate Jessica for doing this, the discipleship pathway is in the back of your bulletin. Earlier, it was given to you in like a quarter sheet card or something. It's in the back. And for all of us, as we're considering this, we need to remember that the first step is always this, to follow Jesus. You could be busy in ministry. You could be involved in community. But if you're not following Jesus, you're not following Jesus. You're following people, you're following a schedule, you're following obligations, calendars. So first step has to be where you understand where the gospel is coming from. You understand that you need a sin. You you do sin. You need to be saved from your sin. And you understand that Christ came to save from your sin and to deliver you from your shame. That's the first step. And so for many of us, it doesn't matter how long you've been at our church, but if you've never put your faith in Jesus and repented and believed in him. Please talk to your neighbor after service. Please talk to the person that brought you and that you're good friends with. And if you want to, come talk to me up front as well, but there's so many people here. It doesn't have to just be me. Take that first step, or at least find out more about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But then as assimilation is being rolled out, then there's a few things that we are prioritizing. The first, that it's, it's about people. It's about you guys. Which is why if you're trying to assimilate 400 people in the English congregation, it, it's, it's a hot mess. Can't do it. But 25 people that are joining the church, that are eager to follow Jesus together with one another and be a part of what God's doing, we can get there with 25 people. So it's about the people And then we want you guys to continue to take the next step one person at a time. And what I hope to do is that you'll be hearing this from the pulpit once we are more ready and prepared, that on a weekly call, you'll hear, hey, if you want to journey with us and you want to take the next step, please come visit us in our Next Steps ministry in the back. Our team in the back, there'll be people that will help you and follow up with you on how you can grow in community, how you can grow in ministry. And if there's something that you want us to create for you, there's something that you have a burden for, we'll see what we can do to make that happen. Because it's about we. You're not alone if you're a member of this church. You're not alone if you want to take the next step. That's what we're here for. And and we're building on commitment. In other words, we're going to start with the people that are ready to go. That's why those 24 people, we prize them. We're so thankful that God has moved in their hearts and their lives It doesn't exclude any of you, but we begin with them and we ask you to join us. If you're a member, this is already how you can apply the vision. But we want to build on commitment, not obligation. 
Finally, we want to keep it simple. It's not about adding a ton of things for you to do. You already have a lot of things to do. But it's to do what you're doing more with the disciple-making purpose. And then, if the Lord leads, and if he's equipping and he's giving a burden, you can take steps forward. And if you see on Discipleship Pathway, whether it's going from just being a Sunday attender faithfully, which is so important, to be able to connect with non-Christians and other people in a community group that's open and evangelistic, to be able to commit to a group of people that are single-gendered and holding you accountable, those are all steps that you can take as you follow Jesus. When you look at the ministry strand, maybe you've been a faithful member and you've been attending and you're connected to people, but maybe you're not serving on any team. And this could be a ministry in which you're serving alone, but still, we want you to be connected to a team. There should be an umbrella that's connected to you. There should be people that are in your lives as you serve. You've been serving for a long time. Maybe you want to take the next step and train to be a leader of teams, to mentor those that are in your care. And if you've been a leader for a long time or you feel the burden, maybe the next step would be to become a coach in which you are training leaders to lead teams. These are all next steps. And when you look at this discipleship pathway, there's not one person here sitting in this room that cannot take the next step, especially when the first step is simply to know and to follow Jesus. If you're hearing the gospel for the first time, if you're hearing about Jesus for the first time, there's a first step for you today. So that's where we are. And it's where we are because it's what God has saved us and made us to be. To be a group of people that is his family, not just the name and title only, but also it's how we live life and commit and grow with one another through thick and thin. And when we value we, and we're willing to stay put, and commit, you know what that's called? Membership. It's not a measure of your status, how old you are, how much you like to go to meetings, how much you give. It's the commitment to God's people. So the big idea for today is this. The call to follow Jesus as a disciple maker begins with the Father's forgiveness, deepens, with Christ-centered faith, it matures through commitment to spirit-filled family. Will you take the next step with us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your work in our lives, individually and personally, as we put our faith in Christ to be set free, Father, from the sin and death that awaits those who are in rebellion against you. But Father, more than that, Father, you didn't just set us free so we could escape from something, but you took us out so that you could put us in a community, a family, in a group of people where we belong, where we can serve, where we can grow, where we can be known, 
and we can know others. Well, we can be equipped to be disciple makers, but also rest as you sustain us through the burdens and trials of everyday life. So we just ask God that you meet us here where we are. Members, regulars, newcomers, long-time seasoned followers of Jesus, disciple makers, and those that are brand new to many things, including the 24 that will be joining our church next week. We thank you, Father, that all of this is your work. And all of this is possible because you are a good, good father to your children. Let us praise you with our hearts, with our lips, with our words, with our lives. And help us to take that next step to commit to you by committing to the good and the livelihood of your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.